with me to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 6, John 6 and verse 22. Remember that in the first part of this chapter, uh, Jesus, with a lad's lunch of five barley loaves and two fish, fed 5,000 men plus women and children. An incredible miracle, the uh, only miracle besides the resurrection that all four Gospels record. The disciples uh, took the bread from Jesus, Jesus broke it and gave it to them. He distributed, they distributed among the crowd. And I think the miracle, as we talked about last time, happened right in their hands as they were eating from whatever crumb they had that they broke off, they were able to eat until they were satisfied. And there were 12 baskets full left over, an incredible, incredible miracle. Jesus performed that miracle uh, for a number of reasons. For one thing, he had, a compa he had compassion for the crowd. They had been with him all day. He was teaching them. He was healing their sick. It was getting late, he had compassion on them. He did it, that miracle, as a test for the disciples. We talked about that. But his higher reason was to reveal his glory, to show something about himself. That he was the son of God, that he had been sent from heaven as the bread of life to give eternal life to those who believe. Just like the manna that Moses provided that was for their physical hunger, the manna was being provided, Jesus, the true manna, for them spiritually. They did think of the right, pa the right passage. They, the crowd, thought of the manna in the wilderness, but they were only thinking of the physical and they missed the sign. They missed what Jesus was revealing of himself to them because they were like uh, Nicodemus, you know, just thinking on the physical level. He was thinking being born again was returning again to your mother's womb to be born. Or the woman at the well who was thinking the, the, the living water was something you could put in a basket or in a bucket. They were thinking that this bread is something that they can eat that will fill their bellies. So they missed the significance of it. Last time we talked about the fact that the disciples missed the significance of what Jesus was teaching. And so he used another teaching method in the storm to teach them what they had missed. Now in these, the rest of the chapter beginning here in verse 22, Jesus is going to explain to the crowd and to the Jews, meaning the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, and he's going to explain to some of his followers and to the twelve the significance of what he had done the day before. So I've called this uh, discourse, that's in verses 22 to 40, the true bread from heaven because of verse 32. So before we read it, just take a peek at that verse. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread of heaven, uh, bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the, what? True bread from heaven. And that word true, uh, Jesus is not re referring to true versus false. 
he's referring to the fact that the manna in the wilderness in the day of Moses was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. That it was a foreshadow, foreshadowing of Jesus, uh, the manna from heaven uh, being a foreshadowing of Jesus, the true manna from heaven. So just like the the spotless lamb that they brought uh, for the forgiveness of their sins did not really forgive sins. It was just foreshadowing Jesus who would die and be the real lamb of God who would really take away their sin. This was a, the manna in the wilderness was a foreshadowing of Jesus who was the reality. The manna was just a semblance of foreshadowing. And of course, as we said, the crowd completely missed that. And so Jesus is going to explain to them what the true bread of heaven is. He'll explain it, clarify it for them in the rest of this chapter. Uh, so I've called, the, I've called this discourse true, the true bread from heaven. The true bread from heaven. And I'm calling, if you looked in your bulletin, you see that the message title is the true bread from heaven, part one, the two gifts. So I say part one because there's another gift to come. There's three gifts. And so as I was preparing that, I think I gave that message, that title to Russ on Wednesday. And by Thursday, I thought, yeah, I, you can't just give two of the gifts of the three. You got to give all three because they're all tied together. And then, you know, by Friday, uh, there's no way I can do that. And so really what we're going to do tonight is I'm going to give you just the first gift of the Father. There's three gifts of the Father. I'm just going to give you the first one. And then I'm going to tell you what the other two are and show you how they all relate together. Then we'll have to at later times come back to the other two. But I will give you all three. I'll focus on the first one and then I'll tell you what the other two are. So tonight is just going to be the first gift of the Father. Now, when I say first, second, and third for my purposes in these sermons, um, I'm not talking of chronological order. I'm talking about first, second, and third as far as the, the way they appear in this chapter. They're not in chronological order, but we'll take them as they appear. So even though um, we're gonna, I'm going to break up this discourse into at least three sermons, at least, um, because it's really one discourse, I want to at least one time read the whole thing. Okay, so if you'll bear with me tonight, I want us to read the whole thing, because it really is, it all fits together, it's all one. And I'll apologize ahead of time to you lovers of the ESV, because uh, I'm not going to be reading from the ESV tonight. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Bible. Uh, I'm a lover of the ESV too, but chapter 6, the ESV just doesn't get it. All right, it's got some serious problems. So we're going to look at it in the New American Standard Version tonight. So um, while we read, since it's a long passage, you can be looking for a few things. See if you can identify the three gifts of the Father that I'm talking about. And also see if you can count or see how many times Jesus or John uses the word come. Come is a very important word in this discourse. And also the word give. 
So look for come, look for give, and look for the three gifts of the Father. So I'll start reading in verse 22. The next day, okay, this is the next day after the feeding of the 5,000. The next day, the multitude that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came another, other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they had ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the multitude therefore saw that Jesus was not there, okay, we know how, why he's not there, right? Because of the last sermon, the storm, Jesus walked across the lake, that's why he's not there. When the multitude therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you, for on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. They said therefore to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. They said therefore to him, What then? Do you do for a sign that we may see and believe, believe you? What works do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus therefore said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives, present tense, is giving you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on that last day." The Jews, therefore, were grumbling about him. So he was talking directly to the crowd. Now he turns to the religious leaders, the Pharisees and scribes. They were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And they were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard 
and learn from the Father comes to me. Not that any man that has seen, has seen the Father except the one who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat it and not die. I am the bread, the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews therefore began to argue with one another saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus therefore said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. Isn't it amazing how many times he repeats that? I will raise him up on that last day. I love that. Verse 55, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he shall live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread shall live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Many therefore of his disciples, when they heard this, so these are now, we'll call would-be disciples. You know, they, they would be a disciple if Jesus uh, gave them everything they wanted, you know, only said things they agreed with. Many therefore his disciples, when they heard this, said this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you should behold the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted from the Father. As a result, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Now Jesus is going to turn to the twelve. Jesus therefore said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So may God bless the reading of his word. It's an incredible discourse. I think I said last time that uh, it's a life-changing discourse. It's a theology-changing discourse. And I think tonight I'll share a little bit with you of my own testimony of how God used that to change my own theology.
Father's, uh, we're going to look at the first gift of the Father, and I want you to see, first of all, the glory, the greatness of the gift that he gives, and then we're going to look at the recipients who receives the gift. So fathers are giving, right? Um, if you had a good father like I did, um, I grew up uh, only knowing a father who was giving. He gives and gives and gives. Um, when I finally grew up and was out of the house, he had more to give, so he adopted three kids, and they gave and gave and gave some more. When I got to know Roos, my wife's father, found the same thing. He was one of the most gracious, generous men that I had ever met. But nothing can compare to the giving of our Heavenly Father, right? So, um, if we had a piano player tonight, I was going to have us sing, He giveth more, gra giveth more Grace. Uh, uh, I was tempted to try to sing without the piano, but I chickened out. <laughs> but the chorus says this, uh, His love has no limit, His grace has no measure, His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of His infinite riches in Jesus, He giveth and giveth and giveth again. That's our Heavenly Father. He is giving God. He is full of grace. And this first gift that we're going to talk about tonight is the most glorious, incredible, so, so great of a gift that it's really indescribable, unsearchable. And did you see it? The first one is in verse 32. Jesus therefore said to them, truly I Truly I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it was my Father, but it is my Father who gives, okay, there's the gift. He is giving you the true bread out of heaven. True bread out of heaven. So you remember that this crowd that he's talking to had, as we said, totally missed the spiritual significance of what Jesus did. They were only thinking about bread that fills their stomach. And so when they came seeking for Jesus and found Jesus, Jesus cut right through their facade, their deceitful coming, you know, attitude. And he said, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you. For on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. So by the, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 and other miracles, God the Father has set his seal on Jesus, that Jesus was indeed the Son of God, who had been sent as the living bread. So I want you to look. At, the living, at this gift. So let's continue reading. So um, we saw the gift in verse 32. All right. Uh, My Father gives you, is giving you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They said, therefore, to him, Lord, even more give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. 
the crowd had ascribed the giving of the manna in the wilderness to Moses, right? Earlier in this passage, Jesus said to them, no, it wasn't Moses, it was God, and it is God now who is giving you the true manna. And he said, I am the true bread from heaven. That's what they missed. We talked about this last time, but that's what they missed in the feeding of the 5,000. All they saw was the manna, the physical food that filled their belly. And Jesus was saying to them, no, I am. It's not the bread. I am the bread of life. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down of heaven. Three times he says it. And last time we looked at this great I am statement, declaration of Jesus. And we said it means at least three things. So I wanna remind you of those tonight and then I'm gonna add a fourth point to it because this is the first gift of the Father that we come to is Jesus, the bread of life. So we said, first of all, the, the fact that Jesus is the bread of life means that Jesus is our satisfying treasure. Okay, that's what it says in verse 35. I am the bread of life, who come, of life. he who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who comes to me shall never thirst. So just as our bodies hunger for physical bread, so our souls hunger for Jesus, and nothing will satisfy the hungering of our souls except for Jesus. No amount of food, no amount of possessions, no amount of pleasures, no amount of relationships, earthly relationships will ever satisfy our souls but Jesus. Jesus alone is the bread that satisfies our soul. Jesus is our satisfying treasure. Secondly, we said that Jesus is our sovereign God. So every time when Jesus said, I am the bread of life, those three times he uses that phrase, ego a me, in which when Jesus uses that, he's identifying himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, the God who delivered the people of Israel from Egypt. So you remember, when Moses saw the burning bush, God spoke to him from the burning bush, told him to go to Egypt. And when Moses said, well, who shall I tell the people sent me? And Moses said, tell them that I am has sent you. I am who I am. You tell them I am has sent me. And that person who was speaking from the bush was Yahweh, God himself. And so Jesus being our bread of life is our sovereign God. That's exactly what Jesus was demonstrating in the feeding in the 5,000 because who can feed 5,000 people plus women and children but God himself. He was demonstrating that he is our God. He is the creator. He is the one who sent the storm. He's the one who calmed the storm for the disciples. God did that. He's the one who walked on water. God can do that. So Jesus, our sovereign God. Thirdly, we said that Jesus is our secure assurance. Okay, we saw how many times Jesus said, I will raise him up on that last day. Okay, 
Uh, he's the one who will get us to glory. He's the one who will get us to the end. So verses 38 through 39 says, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but what? Raise him up on the last day. He will make get us to glory. Uh, he says later in the in the book, let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to re prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I'll take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Secure assurance. The one I want to add tonight that we didn't talk about last time is that Jesus is our sufficient sacrifice. So you gotta keep all those four together. Jesus is our satisfying treasure, he's our sovereign God, he's our secure assurance, and he's our sufficient sacrifice. Did you notice verse 51? I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he shall live forever, and the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is what? My flesh. That's the living bread. Christ, as the living bread, came down from heaven to take our sin upon himself and to die in our place on the cross. So he says in verse 53, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He gave his flesh, he shed his blood that we might have eternal life. So that is Jesus, the bread of heaven. That's the life, the eternal life that the true bread gives us, this gift from the Father, not like the manna that gives just temporary physical life. This life is a living relationship with Jesus Christ who truly satisfies your soul. This life is a, is a life that's lived every moment in the reality that Jesus Christ is ruling, God sovereign over our lives. And it's a life that's lived and the assurance of resurrection and being with Christ forever. And it's a life that's all made possible because Jesus gave his life, shed his blood, gave his body on the cross. That is eternal life. That's the first gift that, Jesus, that the Father gives Jesus, the bread of life. So let's move on to who receives that. So that's an incredible gift. So, I mean, who wouldn't want to come and partake of that, right? All you need to do is come. Um, verse 34 and 35 there. They said, therefore, to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who does what? Comes to me. He who comes to me. Well, who wouldn't come <laughs> to that, right? Well, verse 36 says what? I mean, just get the picture, right? So just as, just as literally as the man in the days of Moses was on the ground before the people that would sustain their life, just as real as that, it was just as real that Jesus, the true manna from heaven, was standing before them, offering them life. 
And what does verse 36 say? 36 say, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Jesus said, all you gotta do is come, but they didn't, they wouldn't come. But wait a minute, did you count all the comes? How many comes were there? I think there were 10 comes, okay? One of them, back up in verse 24 and 25. Okay, when the multitude therefore saw that Jesus was not there, he wasn't on the, the east side of the, of the Sea of Galilee anymore, nor his disciples, they themselves had got into the boats, and what did they do? They came seeking Jesus. They did come. They came seeking Jesus, and verse 25 says they found him. They sought him, and they found him. It's the same word, that word come. So I told you last time, and I think at the beginning of this message, that this, this discourse was a theology changing discourse for me. Uh, and some of you have asked me, um, how did I come about to be reformed in my theology? And one of the defining times in my life is when uh, I was getting to know a person uh, who held to what um, you would call easy believism. So he believed that all anybody had to do to be saved was to, as Jesus says, come to Jesus and believe. Meaning it doesn't matter what your motive is, doesn't matter what you think about your sin, it doesn't matter what you do afterwards, it doesn't matter if you never ever think about Jesus again. If you just come and just believe, just say I believe or raise your hand or come forward or whatever, then you're saved. It's like a free ticket from hat to heaven, right? Free ticket out of heaven, out of hell into heaven. So he, he, would, uh, he was kind of a follower of Lewis Sperry Schaefer, who says this kind of, these kinds of things. To impose a need to surrender the life to God as an added condition of salvation is most unreasonable. God's call, and by the way, your mind should be exploding when I read this with uh, verses that contradict it. Uh, God's call to the unsaved is never said to be unto the Lordship of Christ. It's a perversion of the gospel to invite an unsaved person to receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. To present Christ as Lord to a non-Christian is to add to scriptural teaching, to add to scriptural teaching concerning salvation. So in short, as I said, it's just simple, they would call it simple believing, you just say I believe, okay, you're out of hell, you're, into, you're going to heaven. And they have reduced coming to Jesus and believing to a physical action when in reality, when Jesus said, come 
that you should come to him, he's talking about a spiritual action, not a physical, not a raising of your hand, not a saying of a certain, certain words of a certain prayer, not, it's something spiritual that happens. So, Isaiah, it's like Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, one to three. Listen to this, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and he who has no money come, buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which, which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting and steadfast sure covenant like with my servant David. That is believing, that is coming, that is something spiritual that happens from our soul that we come to Jesus. That's saving faith. It's not just saying, I believe. So um, I read again recently the story of Bruchko. You guys know that story. I know Jill has read it. So uh, Bruce Olson, Bruchko, um, I think in 1960, um, he went to Colombia, uh, South America, to a tribe of Indians called the Motolone, and nobody had ever gone there and returned alive. <laughs> so when he was 19, he went, he walked in, and of course they almost killed him, but he survived, and he um, ended up living with them. So he actually lived with them, like them, okay? So they lived in, they had communal living, they lived in these things called longhouses. Um, they were like 40 feet high, you know, huge because, you know, six or seven, eight, 10, 12 families would li live in these communal homes. They were huge. And they had these scattered out all over their, their region that they lived in in northern Colombia. And <clears throat> so he, he ended up living with, so it means he lived actually in the communal home with them and they would string their, tie their hammocks up way up in the uh, longhouse. Remember, it's like 40 feet high. Some of them be like 20 feet up in their hammocks. And he lived with them and he wanted to be one of them. He wanted to fit in. And so um, they would, one of the things they did is they would sing at night when they would climb into their hammocks, they would sing, they would talk, you know, until everybody fell asleep. And so he said to them, he wanted to sing with them and they say no, you, you can't and uh, he, he, he said you got to be in your hammock he said well I am in my hammock well you got to be suspended in your hammock well I want to have one foot on the ground and they said no <laughs> if you want to sing you got to be suspended in the hammock so he had to tie his hammock on high, up high in order to do that well later when he was translating the Bible into their language, there's no, apparently no word in their language that means believe or have faith. And so he's trying to figure out how to translate that. And so what they came up with, what he came up with was 
that to believe, to have faith, is to tie your hammock into Jesus. Okay, that is total dependence. That's total commitment of anchoring your life, your life into Jesus. And that's what saving faith is. So they, so he would translate verse 47, something like, truly, truly, I say to you, he who ties his hammock in Jesus has eternal life. Total dependence, total commitment. So back at verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me, but you do not believe. You haven't really come. You haven't really believed. Well, if we were there, we wouldn't have been like them, right? I mean, just think of all that they had seen. If you had seen that. So have you ever heard that the, the, the country western song, We're All in the Same Boat? So the chorus goes like this. We're all in the same boat, fishing from the same hole, wondering where the time, same time goes, and many too, trying to fix the same broke hearts, wishing on the same stars. We're hoping hope floats. We're all in the same boat. Yeah, we're all in the hoping hope floats. We're all in the same boat. So let me ask you, are we all in that same boat, that sinking boat that they were in, where if we had seen, we would not believe. So you may be tempted to think you would know better, but remember the religious leaders, the experts in the law who knew the law completely rejected him, wanted to kill him. Even the disciples who wanted to be with Jesus, they thought, turned away from him when he said something they didn't understand, didn't like. Well, you might say, well, I'm a true disciple like the 12. Well, what did Jesus say to the 12? Did I myself not choose you? He says in John 15, 6, you didn't choose me, I chose you. So I know you know the truth of that question, are we all in the same boat, is what? Yes, we were all in that same boat because we're all human with the same heart. So turn back to chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. So this is not the first time that Jesus encountered people who said they believed but didn't really believe, didn't really have saving faith. In chapter 2, Chapter 2, verse 23, Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, and many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. In other words, he knew they, he knew they didn't really believe, for he knew all men, and because he knew, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning men, for he himself knew what was in man. He knows what is in us. And what's in us? Go over a page or so to chapter 3, verse 18. Chapter 3, verse 18. He who believes in Jesus is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. 
This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates, does what? Hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. That's our true condition. That's our sinfulness. We love sin so much that we hate Jesus, so we do, we do not come to him. We will not come to him. Now I want to take a step further. So I talked to you, I said that this passage changed my theology, and this is what happened. So this new friend of mine who was, had easy believism, one day he, he kind of backed me into a corner and um, he said to me, do you believe repentance is necessary for salvation? And of course, I said yes. You know, faith and repentance, two sides of the same coin. We turn from our sin, we turn to Jesus. And he said to me, well then, you're adding works to salvation because that's something that you do. And I knew at that moment the truth was he was right because because uh, I was still holding on to this thought that this idea that even though we are, and I would have said I believed in total depravity, but I believed that there was still something in the, the soul of man that can still believe and repent. And so in the church that I grew up in, salvation was presented like, and it's a gift, but it was presented like this. So salvation is like a gift that Jesus gives us. It's all wrapped up, you know, and it sits, it, it sat on the table in front of you, and you can either reject it or you can receive it. And I still had that in my thinking, that there's something in me, something in man, I mean, it's only fair, right? That we can say yes. So anyway, his backing me into the corner sent me back to the scriptures, and one of the scriptures was this scripture. So I want you to um, look at verse, well, let's start in verse 41. Verse 41, the Jews therefore were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And they were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me. So I was, this wasn't that long ago when this happened. I was only 32 at the time, <laughs> like yesterday. But I still remember vividly reading those verses. So this is what Jesus is basically saying. He's saying to these experts in the law who were arguing, grumbling among themselves, he said, it's no use. 
You can just stop your grumbling. You can stop trying to figure it out because no one can. No one can come to me. So that word that Jesus used there, no one, is the word udais, which literally means none, nobody, can even mean not even one. Zero. Not me, not you. The word, the next word, no one can, that word can is the word dunamis that we get the word dynamite from, which means power or ability. So those are the words of Jesus. Zero, no one has the ability to come. It doesn't matter how fair or unfair I might have thought it was. That's what Jesus said. No one has the ability to believe, not even one. So it's not just that we don't believe, it's not just that we don't want to believe. The truth about our depravity is we can't. We do not have the ability to believe. We cannot come to Jesus. Jesus will repeat the same thing in verse 65. For this reason I have said to you that no one, how many? None. No one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. And if you want to know why he says that, look up at verse 63. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits zero. Okay? Why is it that nobody can come? To Jesus because in ourselves, in our flesh, in our human nature, we have zero to add to our salvation, to our faith, to our coming, to our hearing, to our seeing, anything spiritual, we have nothing to offer. I mean, that's what we read in our responsive reading, right? And you were what? Dead in your trespasses and sin. He didn't say you're almost dead. You know, you're mostly dead. You're 99.9% .9 dead except for this one thing you can do, okay? A dead person cannot come. A dead person cannot believe. So if uh, there's any, if there was any, any doubt anymore in my mind, all I had to do was read Romans 1 through 3 where Paul describes a human condition, universal human condition, and he concludes there is how many? None righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There is none, zero, who seek after me. Not one. That's because of our depravity. So, some call this, of course, total depravity, right? They call it the first point of Calvinism, but we really shouldn't give Calvin the credit, should we? It comes right from Jesus. Well, if that's true then, who can be saved? Well, that's where gifts two and three come in, all right? So we're almost out of time, so let me just tell you what gifts two and three are. The second gift, second in terms of the second that we come to in this passage, is in verse 37. 
Verse 37, I love this verse. All that the Father gives me. Okay, the second gift, the first gift was a gift from God the Father to us, the bread of life, Jesus, who would lay down his life for us. The second gift that Jesus talks about here is a gift that God the Father gave to who? To Jesus. A gift he gave to Jesus, and the gift he gave to Jesus is a definite group of people that the Father has chosen for his Son to be to belong to his Son. Look at what he says. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down to be from heaven to do the will of my Father who sent me, and this is the will of him who sent me, that all he has what? Given me, okay, all those who come, all those who believe, those who are given to Jesus are those given to Jesus by the Father. So that word will, uh, it's the will of my Father, is very strong. It refers to God's chosen, decreed will, what he has chosen in eternity past. And it's something that happened, okay, before Jesus came, because we know that because he says, I came down out of heaven, so the living bread came because of this decree, this will that happened in eternity past. So this preceded that. It comes first. In eternity past, God chose a certain people to give to his son. And every single one of those, Jesus will save by dying for them on the cross. That's the Father's will. But what about the fact that we still have to believe and we can't? That's where the third gift comes in. All right. Third gift, did you see it? It's in verse 65. We've read it a couple times already. For this reason I have said to you, now Jesus is talking here to these would-be disciples, these disciples who say they're following Jesus, but really they don't believe. They're just following him for what, you know, physical or temporal blessings they can get out of him. And they uh, turn away. But he's talking to these people and he's saying, for this reason I said to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been what? Granted by the Father. There's the third gift. Same word, okay, a little bit different form, but it's the same word given by the Father. And this is talking about uh, a gift that happens in time to people who believe, all right? He's saying the reason that these disciples don't believe apparently is because it hadn't been granted to them from the Father. And what is it that's granted to them from the Father in time? If you look back up at verse 63, I think it is. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. So in time, God grants, gives us the Spirit who gives us life, and with that life, the ability to believe to repent, to see, to hear spiritually. It's all from him. It's actually a sovereign gift of his. So what does that mean? It means all of our salvation from beginning to end is whose work? 
It's God's work. It's all his. It's all his. So let me put it in order now, chronological order, the three gifts. So I think Russ said a few weeks ago that salvation is a divine surprise. Okay, you can see that from the passage because it doesn't come from us. It comes from God's sovereign doing. And I thought of my own testimony. Um, when I was 13 years old, and that was a long time ago, um, I was sitting in a Bible study that I didn't want to be at. I was with a bunch of kids I didn't want to be with. I was listening to a teacher that I didn't want to listen to. I was sitting in a back corner, not listening. But all of a sudden, and I had gone to church all my life, but all of a sudden, I heard. For the first time, and I probably heard this verse a million times, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And I saw for the first time the glory of what Christ did for me. I heard for the first time. I came. I believed. What was happening? Those three gifts, right? It all happened because in eternity past, God chose me for his son. At, the, at Calvary, God sent Jesus to die for me, to be the living bread. And at that moment, God sent the Holy Spirit to give me life. That's the only way I believed or repented or anything. It's because God did it all. So I'm not in the same boat anymore. You're not in the same boat, right? God took us out of that boat and put us into another one, or to put it in biblical terms, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us in the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of his sins. So our salvation is of God, nothing of ourselves, therefore all the praise is to him. It's all to the praise of his glory, like Paul talked about this morning in Ephesians 1. To the praise of his glory, or Russ mentioned it. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow and worship because of your infinite grace and mercy and love. You have indeed blessed us with every spiritual blessing, and you chose us and you predestined us to be Christ. You redeemed us with his precious blood, and you give us his spirit, your spirit the power of the Spirit to give us life. So to you be all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So you want to know the end of the story?